When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Proudly family-owned and operated since 1989. statetransport.com.au The Captain's Run with Sam Edmund. Australia today walk back into the lion's den that is this Border Gavaskar series. Unsure over its lineup, unsure over its method, and unsure how to combat their Indian spin tormentors. Last night... England's positivity and conviction completely overwhelmed another rival on a day in which Basball reached crazy new heights and Test cricket was given another almighty jolt from Brendan McCullum's swashbuckling side. The juxtaposition is staggering. I mean, England yesterday batted first against host New Zealand, roaring to nine for 325 in only 58.2 overs, going at a clip just under six runs and over. Staggeringly, they then declared the second earliest declaration in the first innings of a match in the 146-year history of Test cricket, behind only Pakistan at Lords in the 70s. And in incredible scenes over there at the Bay Oval, England just went nuts. Ollie Pope had yet to get off the mark when he danced down the wicket to Tim Southey and smacked him to the fence. Joe Root got out playing a reverse sweep off the quick Neil Wagner. That went to slip. Harry Brook played ramp shots over the keeper. He hit straight sixes, and he went out trying to hit a six into the next postcode. But he smashed 89 off 81. Ben Duckett, 84 off 68. This, all of this, in the first day of the first test. And then sent in to face the pink ball under lights, the hosts are three for 37 in reply, with the big wicket of Kane Williamson among them. Three sessions, and the Kiwis are on the rack. Harry Brooks said it was always part of the plan to declare and have a crack at New Zealand in perfect bowling conditions. Jimmy Anderson obliged. He took two, got a couple to swing absolutely savagely. Now, New Zealand's Neil Wagner said, we knew that they were going to play a positive brand of cricket, and they did. It's quite exciting for Test cricket. You can say that again, Neil. You couldn't take your eyes off it. And they have put the defibrillator paddles on the long form of the game, England. Elite-level sport, you know, spends so much time telling its players what they can't do and finding reasons to cut them, sack them, trade them, retire them, whatever it might be. What of embracing what they can do or playing to the strengths and empowering those traits because that's exactly what England have done. They've now won Brendan McCullum's side nine of their past 10 tests. Now, putting aside the difference, the obvious difference, of course, in opposition the venue, the conditions, everything. Is there a huge difference in the psychology of McCullum's England and McDonald's, Andrew McDonald's Australia? Like Travis Head was a record break in a record-breaking run of form that had him ranked as the fourth best test batsman in the world. He couldn't even get a game in the first test. David Warner had built his entire career on an aggressive mindset. He now looks timid, seemingly frozen by the fear of failure. And Robert Craddock, as he wrote in the News Corp papers today, Warner not only appears likely to be retained for this second test, as Pat Cummins attested, but that Australia is actually willing Warner towards a farewell Ashes tour later this year. Neither Cam Green or Mitchell Stark have convinced over their finger injuries, but the bottom line would seem to be this. 
no, neither are going to be 100% by this afternoon. So do we just play them anyway, or one of them anyway? When do you just say, bugger it? Coming off an absolute low point, a shocker in the first test, now staring down the barrel of India retaining this series trophy. Do they, or should they, just roll the dice? Now, Green's inclusion might mean Australia play three spinners and Stark misses out. Matt Kuhneman might become our second shock spin selection in as many tests. Or does Travis Head play, come in, and his spin is enough and Stark is ready enough? Oh, there's so many coulda, shoulda, woulda talking points when it comes to our 11. That will be resolved in a few hours. But as we look over at England's basball, what of our intent? We're a bit like, you know, we're a bit like the old lady in Harry Met Sally. I'll have what she's having. Did you watch it? Are we good enough? Are we bold enough to replicate that? The old adage is defence wins championships. What of just going right at them? And the psychology of it all fascinates me. I mean, here's a side who was, you know, from the outside looking in, gripped by the fear of failure. And they've been freed by this coach. It's quite a fascinating change of events. And a lot of people saying, calm down, settle down. They were nine for, yeah, they were nine for after they hit 358 overs. Yeah, Anderson would have added a lot. I'm sure it's not as if they were three or four or five down in the declaration. It is still the first time it's happened in nearly 100, uh, 150 years. It's only been beaten by one early declaration in the 70s. So it's history making in every sense. I can't wait for England to tour India and what will happen then to baseball. Now, they have had their shockers historically. They have. But they stick to the method, don't they? You love saying baseball against a strong attack, baseball won't work. They'll be all out for 125. Wake up to yourself. Well, we'll see what happens, won't we? But we'll all be watching, and that's the good thing about it. It's compulsive viewing. It's everything we need in test cricket. And a lot of people calling for calm. That's fine. That's fine. But it was absolutely magnificent yesterday. I mentioned Harry Brook. This is what he had to say at Stumps after day one of the first test in New Zealand. I think I dug in for a little bit, but then I decided it's time to go. Um, I feel like whenever I'm batting with Stokes, yeah, I need to put the foot down a little bit. Um, he's always doing funky things, running down and stuff like that. So, um, no, I got a few bad balls and uh, I put them away, thankfully. It's the best time to bowl is under these lights. Um, I think you can extract the most amount of swing and seam, so uh, why not expose their, their top order to, to that? It's the hardest time to bat, and we've got two of the best bowlers to have ever played the game. So... Um, yeah, and thankfully we got three wickets. So we're going to speak to Daniel McCarty later on as well, of course, SENZ's very own, and doing some work for TalkSport in this series as well. But it's they're so laid back, the English. Like listening to, to Stokes before the match saying he didn't even care if he was going to um, – in fact, he preferred if he lost the toss because he didn't know what he was going to do, bat or bowl, if he won the toss. So they are a very, very calm – side at the moment, England, and um, they are firing on all cylinders. And look, at the very minimum, doesn't it just whet the appetite amazingly for the Ashes in the middle of the year? Because at the moment, even if we're comparing apples and oranges, psychologically, it would appear as though we're very different setups at the moment, our two cricket teams. Now, Andrew Strauss, of course, um, face of English cricket for a long, long time, successful captain. He spoke in uh, in, a, in a meeting in an internal setup there over in England about, uh, I guess, the evolution and the adaptation of baseball. The coming together of Brendan McCullum and Ben Stokes in May last year has shifted the game of Test cricket from its foundations and has asked some fundamental questions of the centuries-old accepted truths of the Test format. Firm, uh, format, excuse me. If in doubt, bat first has been replaced by. I want to chase in the fourth innings, we can chase anything. 
Build an innings have been replaced by shoot first and ask questions later. See, if, see off the new ball has been replaced by hit it harder. I can see Johnny there smiling. And bowl maidens and apply pressure has been replaced by forget about the scoreboard and just find a way to induce a mistake. This broadside on the conventions of the game has been confronting to many. The opposition captains have by and large struggled even to utter the word basball without a frothing of the mouth and a scarcely concealed contempt. The pundits and grand old guard of the game has often been left shaking their collective heads at the sheer audacity of this ambition. That was Andrew Strauss. That was Andrew Strauss. A lot of people saying, just wait for India. India will destroy them. This is as hard as it gets over there, says Fogg. Look at England's last tour of India. Uh, That's all coming through off the text. Sid uh, has texted in, the best form of defence is attack. That's the case in all sports. And this one, definitely roll the dice. What we've been doing hasn't worked for a long time. Warner and the goat out, Head and Kuhneman in. Green is the future. Yeah, it's all good now because they played on flat tracks except for probably the New Zealand one, but we'll see what happens. Um, uh, Getting low scores, get dropped, and they lose a few test matches, then what happens? That's from Paul. And, yeah, you wonder with the Ashes, if it it does go south over there, how the local media will respond to it. But at the moment, they're absolutely humming, and it's great to watch. I mean, if if you saw it, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you didn't, do yourself a favour and, uh, and tune in a little bit later on uh, today. Maybe flick between the two tests because uh, it is unbelievable what uh, what England are doing at the moment under Brendan McCullum. The second test for us today, 225 in Delhi. Jared Waitley, Adam Collins uh, leading the call team over there. And we're going to have a chat to Ryan Harris uh, shortly. He's going to help set the scene for us as well. A absolute bedlam at the moment at the Riviera Country Club in Los Angeles for this Genesis Invitational. It's bedlam because Tiger Woods is back. First tournament in seven months. Now, they were four deep at practice earlier this week, and it's, it's just looking at some of the... Uh, he's even par through seven at the moment. It's an absolute mosh pit behind Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods! What a shot. Down the fairway at the first at Riviera Country Club. And he is officially back. He is officially back, and we'll keep a very close eye on it. We might even try to get over to Genesis uh, throughout the morning as well, just to uh, see if we can speak to someone on the ground there to set the scene for us. Uh, the McCafe menu is loaded. The open line is open, all thanks to EFS. They deliver simple freight solutions. one 736 736 I've been struck by what England are doing. Maybe I'm overplaying it. Maybe I'm putting mayo on it when we we shouldn't. And maybe I'm comparing apples to oranges. But I'm just struck by the psychology and the freeing of the mind over there in that setup. Uh, Incredible to think that Joe Root could go out playing a reverse sweep to a quick on the first day of a first test, regardless of the situation. The 40 Wings temper is 0433981116 temper. Of course, a mattress like no other. The McCafe menu has Ryan Harris shortly. Uh, Daniel McCarty, I mentioned. Steve Rossich is going to join us. Uh, Kane Pittman, talk all things NBL playoffs. Andy Harper, the world game. Miles Fitzner and Bharat Sundarason, speaking of men on the ground. He'll join us live from India at 20 to 12 uh, as a new day dawns in this this Border Gavaskar Trophy Series. That's all thanks to McCafe, our official coffee partner. We'll be back after this uh, on mornings, on the captain's run, in fact, on a Friday for State Transport. Our people are your solution. We are counting down to the start of the second test between India and Australia in Delhi. SEN, of course, will be there from 2.25 this afternoon for ball-by-ball coverage. To set the scene for us, we're joined by former Aussie ODI and Test Quick, Ryan Harris. Rhino, welcome. 
morning, Sam. Nice to chat, mate. Likewise. Good to talk to you again. Oh, can you recall a more fervent debate, Ryan, over an 11 than what we've got here? It's been uh, it's been intense this week. Uh, it's been unbelievable, hasn't it? It's, um, I've answered your question, no. Um, and, and I was probably surprised, well, surprised for the first time in a long time the selections in the first test uh, as well. So um, I think, obviously, because of that, that's why the debate's been going on. Um, and chucking a few uh, injured players as well with Stark and Green, uh, Hazelwood as well. So, uh, look, yeah, it's been a, a hotly debated side. Um, I think just about every every cricket pundit has put their side out and had their two cents worth. So, um, look, it's like everyone... Um, I'm fascinated again to see, like I was in the first um, going to the first test, what what the makeup of the team is. But it's going to be um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It has been, hasn't it? The question around the water cooler: What's your eleven look like? I I wonder now. You mentioned the injured players, so with Cam Green and Mitchell Stark, and we're being kept in the dark right up until the coin toss here. So I mean, regardless of what happens, Ryan, I think it's safe to say neither of them are going to be a hundred percent. I wonder, there's a feeling out there, given the high stakes, you know, the series is on the line here. Is it time to take a risk? I mean, assuming they're okay medically and it's more of a judgment call, do they roll the dice on, on one or both, given given the fact that, um, you know, the series is on the line? Yeah, I, I, I think they will. Um, my only worry with one of... Mitchell Stark doesn't doesn't bother me so much, too much because he's... I mean, he's been bowling... Um, over there, um, he, he, he's, he's had a, I mean, he's had a couple of weeks off, obviously, with his finger coming in. It wasn't what, only, a, only a few weeks, so he's had enough bowling. So he'd be ready. The only one would be Cameron Green, um, <clears throat> excuse me, who still was the other day only bowling with a tennis ball. I, I heard on the news. I only heard that through the media reports, but that's a bit concerning that he's still not, or he, he wasn't bowling mm. um, actually with a cricket ball. So that's sort of the, that's the that's the recovery you have coming back from a broken finger as a bowler. So. My worry with him, if, if they go in with him, um, they may only go in with one other quick. Um, and if he's not, you know, if he can't get through 15, 20 overs or, or 15 overs at least, um, that, that's going to put a lot of pressure on the other quick, probably Pat Cummins. So, um, you know, <clears throat> not that hopefully we'll need, need the quicks too much. Because if we, if I think if we, if Cameron Green plays, I've got a feeling we're playing three spinners, yeah. which I think is not a bad idea. So, and I think when you say that, that's a little bit out of the box for us to play to do that. Um, so, Look, it's. I think Mitchell Stark plays. Um, he should play. He 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 he, roughs, he gets a bit of rough outside that off stump for Nathan Lyon and Todd Murphy. Um, you know, so and obviously Ashwin as well. He'll, he'll create that rough for. But I think the fact that they haven't named this what this the team, which I I know they like doing the day before or the night before. Yeah, it tells me that there's still a fair bit of doubt there and what they are actually going to go with. Yeah, so Ryan, you played for a long time. And at this level of the game, you know, you get smacked around and you do the smacking around. But psychologically, in between those matches is so interesting. Like, take us inside the dressing room. They're a pretty, well, we like to think they're a pretty resilient group. I mean, how would they have gone about picking themselves up from that? Because it was obviously an unmitigated disaster, the first test. Yeah, it was. And that, they obviously know that. You don't have to tell them that. Yeah. And they are, don't worry, they're very resilient. That's, that's, that's how you get there. And that's what you, you that's part of your job of, of, of being a professional sport cricketer. I can't talk about other sport, but you've, you've got to be able to, you know, yeah, you've, you've got to be able to bounce back after, after a defeat like that. So, so look, they, they would have had some um, you know, good plans going in. They had their preparation. Some have questioned the preparation of not playing a game, which is a little bit interesting, but they had their preparation. They had it. Uh, in Sydney, they were happy with it, um, according to, again, only hearing what they say in the media. Um, they would have had their plans, and, and they probably just went away from their plans. Again, when you're under pressure out there, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to do. I mean, I never played cricket, um, Test Cricket in India, but you know, talking a lot about to, to ex-players and coaches, it's 
you know, it's your plans can be you can go away from your plans pretty quickly when you're under pressure. So it's just mm. a matter of, of, of sticking to them. They would have sat down. They would have, um, you know, unpacked everything. They would have spoken as a group. They would have spoken individually with each other, or even with their coach, with, with the coaching staff. You know, once you get through that day, or probably day or two after, probably day, um, then you then you then you sort of move on to you know what's coming up next and and what do I have to do and and what is my plan and making sure um, you know put that plan into place. At training, they have um, you know. A good thing about being in India, one of the best things is you've got a lot of bowlers that can come in, so you can you can go and hand pick um, <clears throat> a lot of you know like unusual spinners, which which is what they'll do, and they'll have them bowling to them you know for two or three hours at a time. So they'll have that practice. They'll get back in the nets, um, and again that you know that's that's what you got to do. As I said, just got to get over that whatever that whatever that last test was. Um, you know, and then work on how you're going to make it better and coming up in this next one. So that, they're, they're very determined. They're, they're, these guys are these guys are, are good players. Um, there's no doubt about that. And and, and um, you know, again, I think by well, the sounds of the, the thing for me is as well, they sound like they're pretty they're a tight knit group. Um, you know, they'd be helping each other out and encouraging each other. So uh, you just got to move on. And and, and when you get out there tomorrow today, um, it, it's going to be a um, you know, make sure you're 100 percent ready and, and and switched on. We're speaking to former Australian fast bowler Ryan Harris. Uh, Ryan, I've got to ask you, Steve Smith's, you know, thumbs up um, has really split old and new age thinking, really. And, and Pat Cummins has said he was bemused by the fact, you know, you win so many tests playing in a certain way and then the one you lose, you've apparently got to play with a harder edge. I mean, what's your mm-hmm. line of thinking with this sort of stuff? Oh, I sort of tend to, I don't agree with, I tend to agree with Pat. Um, I think the thing with Steve Smith, I mean, I know AB, the great AB, is a legend of our sport and, Legend of a man. I know he's come out and said some stuff, and and that's the way he sees it, and that's absolutely fine. I, I don't think actually Steve Smith would know he'd be doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, when he's out there and he does all his mannerisms, um, you know, he compliments bowling when a lot um, when you know when a bowler bowls a good ball, and um, you know, that, I think it's really tough. I, I, I sort of, I mean, I do agree with AB in a way that we want to we want to be hard edged lots of stuff, but I think. It's it's a tough one because I mean I back when I was back when I was playing and and you know we 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 weren't necessarily liked as in, in by the Australian public friends because we played a bit too hard or thought we played hard and and then all of a sudden if the guys don't go out too hard go out and play hard then they don't play hard enough so I think it's a it's a thin line to walk yeah. and and you know you're never going to please everyone with the way you play I mean history says that we do we go out and play hard and do and do but. You know whether that's the, the right thing for this team. That that might be something a little bit different the way they the way they talk about. You know whether they get out and get in India's face or get in Kohli's face, which it doesn't look like that's the way they played this time. I know it might have been a bit of a plan last time they're there, but it might it didn't work. So it's interesting. You just don't know unless you're inside that in sanctum there that exactly what what the feelings are and what the what the plan is. You know to to go out and well not intimidate but but you know get under the, uh, the opposition's skin. So it's really hard to sit and, and talk from the outside, but. Look, I, I, again, I, I don't like seeing it too chummy. <laughs> but um, yeah, the other thing about this as well, they play a lot of IPL together. The guys know each other a lot better than they used to yeah. um, with, you know, with opposition players. So they play for... um, but, and again, I don't like seeing too much of the, the chummy stuff. But again, it's, 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 you know, it is what it is. And like I said, Steve Smith probably wouldn't even know he was doing that. Hey, Ryan, just a quick broader one before we let you go. Um, uh, closer to home, I think we've all been struck by uh, last night, yesterday's test between um, New Zealand and England, and, and Basball, even by their standards, going to 
another level there with a, with a first day declaration. I was keen to do you feel this is more, um, you know, and it's been the last 10 tests, this method, a, a potential flash in the pan or something that is really going to catch on because they're almost changing the face of, of, of this format of the game right in front of our eyes? Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated, just fascinated by what happens there every, every time they play. Um, and it worked last night. I mean, you got New Zealand, um, albeit they're under man New Zealand, but three for 40, I think they are at the end of the day. And, um, you know, that's just from afar, again, just seeing the way they, they want to do it and want to play. It's just, it's Brendan McCullum, as it's called, Baz Ball, as everyone's labelled it. It's akin to a T. Just love to get the game moving. Mm. Um, really, yeah, really, really unusual to, to do it, you know, Declare on day one. <clears throat> you know, I think with day night cricket, whether they do that in the Red Bull test, probably. Uh, with day night cricket, um, with, with day night test cricket, you know, the best time the bowls around that dusk area, obviously, that, or, or, or just as the sun is going down. So, um, yeah, maybe that's a plan that they had to, to try and explore, um, you know, to, to, to get the best conditions to bowl. Um, but oh, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I mean, I'm still curious to see how long that, that, that can last. I mean, they've done it now, as you say, for a little while, but. Um, you know what happens. I'm just like everyone. I think I speak to is it's great to watch for now. What happens if it doesn't work for three or four tests? Where do they go? But look, it's it's entertaining. Um, are they are they setting the new? I don't think so. I mean, I mean, we 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 we've always tried to play attacking cricket. I wouldn't say we play that attacking <laughs> in Australia. Uh, we like to keep the game moving. But look, it, it's another. Four, everyone plays it differently. It's like when you're playing in all conditions. Everyone plays the test match differently in those conditions. If they want to keep doing that and. And it, well, they've been successful. Then that's that's great. And I, what I look forward to is our, you know against our guys in in, in England in is that going to be in August, I think, or whenever it is. It's going to be. I'm interested to see how they how they play, uh, you know, against us it, it, with that sort of format. I mean, Ben Stokes did it in the Test match last time we were there. Um, so look, it, it's it is it's it's great to watch. Um, I just wonder how long it can can go on for. And um, like many people, I spoke and do it the same. So, but mm. yeah, I, I think they have they've reinvented the wheel a little bit. Um, like I said, I don't think we've ever seen a. I definitely haven't seen a, a declaration eight or nine down on day one. That's <laughs> <It's, laughs> amazing. It is. You can't look away, can you? Hey, Ryan, yeah. uh, great to chat again. Appreciate your insights as always, and uh, enjoy the cricket this afternoon. Thanks. Nice chat. Fizz is texting. Essen and haters of their own loyal skipper is a disgrace. Heppel has been nothing but selfless captaining through a dark part of the club history. Go Cats. I, I tend to agree, Phil. Um, you can say what you like about Dyson Heppel's place in Essen's best 22, but uh, I would strongly disagree with any notion that he's been selfish, either over the captaincy, as I mentioned, or historically, because as you say, um, he had to um, he had to navigate and face up and front up to um, to a lot during the, as you say, the darkest part in uh, in Essence history off the back of, of Joe Watson as well. Uh, Simo, Dyson has trained in Inverloch uh, over the summer for years. This is the best I've seen him for a long time during summer. Maybe the Bombers supporters just need to calm down. There's no obvious up-and-coming leader, and with a new coach, some stability might be needed. And we're reminded off the text, well, Travis Boak actually gained a yard at a similar age as well. Shooter in Kilsoth, why not give the captaincy to Parrish? best player and probably takes him off the free agency table. But coming back to cricket, I didn't mind this text either um, from a, another Phil uh, in Adelaide. This statement that Basball won't work against such and such 11 has so far been stated against South Africa, 
India, Pakistan, a 3-0 up against Pakistan in that series, and now in New Zealand. Seems to be going okay against all of them in the last 12 or so tests. And England yesterday, with the second earliest declaration in the history of test cricket, you know, they're nearly six runs and over score of nine for 325 was followed by New Zealand's 337. It was an extraordinary day of test cricket, and SENZ's Dan McCarty was there to witness it for Talk Sport. Dan, welcome aboard. Oh, heck of a day, Space Sam. Great to chat to you, and, uh, you know, good morning, good afternoon to, to your audience, wherever you may be. Uh, it's a thoroughly enjoyable day. Uh, we didn't know what to expect from the surface. They've had to prepare um, uh, a test match wicket during a cyclone. Uh, it's quite incredible what they've achieved at Bay Oval uh, to, to have a wicket that wasn't moving sideways uh, at extraordinary rates. So credit to them. There was just enough in it. New Zealand winning the toss and bowl first. Zach Crawley's dropped second ball at third slip. Then the first ball of the second over, Neil Wagner bowls Crawley, but it's a no ball. And that probably was the most boring phase of the day. Uh, it, it, was, it was incredible. Uh, Zach Crawley lived a charmed life, uh, but once he departed um, in, the, in the third over with, with just four to his name at 18 for one, you thought, hey, well, New Zealand might be in with a, a go here to knock the top off. Not the case. Duckett smashed 84, a better than a runner ball, hit 14 fours and 68 balls at the crease. Ollie Pope, Joe Root, they, they try to get amongst it. Wickets sort of fell regularly, but there was such a forceful nature of the, the English scoring rate. They're 134 for two at lunch of 23 overs mm. and 279 at the dinner break of just 48 overs. Five down at that stage. The big talking point up until then was Joe Root caught reverse sweeping at first slip of Neil Wagner. I'll repeat, Neil Wagner, left arm fast medium. Mm, yeah. Caught reverse sweeping by uh, the slip, uh, who was uh, Daryl Mitchell, who was lined up at, at second slip. It was quite, it was frenetic through the opening couple of sessions. I was fearing the worst for New Zealand. I was fearing, you know, 450 on day number one, but they bowled quite well after that dinner break, picking up four for 44 and about 11 overs. But the problem then, when England made the declaration, there were, a, there were a few sort of surprised people. There were some going, this makes perfect sense. This is how England play. They're bold, they take some risks, and it's under lights, pink ball. We know that brings uncertainty, and then the English attack. And that's a really good attack in those conditions. Anderson, Robinson, and, mm. and Board made it a really testing uh, you know, final uh, period. And they're well and truly on top, having snared three. The Joe Root dismissal really did stand out, as did Ollie Pope, I think was yet to get off the mark when he danced down the wicket to Sim, Tim Southey and smacked him to the fence. So I was going to ask you, actually, just to tap into the, the thinking amongst the locals who were there at the Bay Oval, if you don't mind, Dan. Look, Basball is not a new phenomenon, but even by this team's standards, this was seen to be uber-aggressive. But it appeared as though the hosts were relatively prepared for it. I think uh, reading some of the stuff out of the New Zealand camp that they were prepared for for a real force of nature, as you termed it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, through the 10 tests under Brendan McCullum and Ben Stokes, they play with, you know, with the pedal down, don't they? The foot to the floor. So New Zealand knew they were going to come hard at them. And New Zealand recognised they went in with a very green bowling lineup. Uh, two men on debut and Tickner and Kugeline, who are, you know, reasonably long in the tooth as far as first-class cricket, with not, you know, overwhelming resumes. Um, Southie bowled well, I thought, throughout, even though he went at five and a half runs and over. Uh, Wagner really struggled early before pulling it back in that final session, but they went after Tickner and Kugeline as well, the two men on debut. You know, both of those players going at five and a half, six runs and over. The, the boundaries, just, it seemed like one at least and over. Harry Brook, though, for me, is the standout. Gee, he, 
he is some player. 89 off 81, 304 test matches leading into this. He was on the cusp of joining a group, I think, it might only have a couple all-time having scored 400s in his opening five test matches. The kid just stays so still at the crease, and his hand-eye coordination is just mm. frightening. And there was one, one shot where he danced down to Tim Southey, still swinging the ball away, and he just hit through the line and monstered him over long off. But that was probably the shot of the day. It, 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 was, it was truly exhilarating. Um, but then on the, on the flip side, under lights when the ball's moving around, it was also edgy, you see, stuff when New Zealand were batting, even though they were being quite obdurate and just trying to get through that, um, you know, 20-over spell. The ball's beating the bat, it's nibbling around. We had the best of both worlds on a day uh, no one I don't think will forget who was at Bay Oval. I wanted to ask you, Dan, clearly it's working at the moment and, and everything's paying off for, for Baz McCullum's side. Is there any feeling in, in the cricket world that perhaps they're flirting with disaster, that it's gonna, there is going to be a, a massive collapse at one particular point in time? Because even when they lost an early wicket here today, their, their method didn't change. They were still as aggressive as ever. Do, do you feel like they, they can be on thin ice at times and they're perhaps only you know, but flirting with a, with a really disastrous score? Well, they've had the odd, they've had the odd disastrous score under McCullum. In fact, their first test innings, they were bowled out for 140 by New Zealand at Lords. In fact, I, I don't think they've performed well at Lords in any test match Brendan McCullum's and, and Stokes have been in charge with. People are always going to fear the worst with the way um, they play, and it could happen. Um, you know what? It probably will happen. And I don't think they're going to care. Well, well outwardly, mm. they're not going to tell you they care. They just understand that um, with the way they play, there will be some bad days, but they'll just park it. They are so relaxed. I must admit, having seen England tour here um, on previous iterations, it's chalk and cheese. Ben Stokes in the lead-up. I don't know who's more horizontal, him or McCullum. I think there's got to be a competition between who's more laid-back. Ben Stokes saying uh, the day before uh, the game, oh, I hope I lose the toss. I'm not really sure what I want to do. And he was quite sincere about that. Uh, you know, they, they, I think they don't ride the highs and lows uh, too much. But when you play mm. that that way, when it does go wrong, and I'll use that word again because it will go wrong. Hey, if it goes wrong in an Ashes, you know what the English press are going to do. Um, is Baz ball the right way to go? I, I, I don't think there's a long leash on, um, you know, the critics sharpening the knives if it, if it doesn't go their way. But long may it continue because it does make our test cricket, you know, thoroughly exhilarating for for for, the, for fans of, of both sides. There, there's so much interest in the series in New Zealand. I've, you know, I, I, I've never felt like I've had so many friends this week. People calling if I can get tickets uh, yeah. uh, to to the hometown test of mine in Wellington, the second test, which I think is sold out for three days. Uh, that, that's quite telling there. So uh, you know, long may it continue. But you know, if you can get the ball to move laterally, that's the key. Um, Saudi showed that in his opening spell. They will be respectful. Uh, they'll take the odd risk. They'll try and come down to sort of negate the, st- the swing and the seam, as we saw from their top order. Um, so they'll look to absorb some pressure, but when they recognise there's a chance to put that pressure back on the opposition, uh, Brendan McCullum and Stokes are telling them to do that at every available opportunity. So it's sort of punch and counterpunch, which makes for fascinating viewing. Oh, it is. It's fascinating viewing. Absolutely. It's a thriller minute. Uh, so just to reiterate there, New Zealand, the host, three for 73 in reply. Uh, the big wicket at Kane Williamson back in the sheds as well. We'll watch with interest. How could we not? Tomorrow, uh, Dan McCarty, thanks so much for your time. Anytime. Take it easy.
As Dan McCarty there, I say three for 73. Three for 37, of course, uh, Dan McCarty there in New Zealand. Interesting text coming through on England's mentality. I'll get to those in a moment. A Tiger update from California. Turned one under after nine. He found sand on the 10th, so he's back to even par. Max Homer, the clubhouse leader at seven under. By the way, our Aussie women marched on last night in the T20 World Cup as well in South Africa. This time they dispatched Sri Lanka. You would have heard that in the news earlier, and they did it with ease. Chasing... The Aussies won by 10 wickets, 25 balls to spare, and they moved to 3-0 and atop Group A. Um, the $1 million Group 1 black caviar lightning will be run tomorrow at Flemington. In fact, it was the world's highest-rated Group 1 sprint last year. There's a lot of anticipation about tomorrow at the home of racing in Melbourne, and it's a great pleasure to have uh, the VRC CEO, uh, Steve Rossich, on the line with us. G'day, Steve. Hello, Sam. How are you, mate? It's great to have you on. You'd be excited. You're all over it. The world's highest rated Group 1 sprint here at Flemington tomorrow, the Black Caviar Lightning. It has the world's best sprinter, Nature Strip, mm-hmm. the world's best jockey, James McDonald, and we think one of the world's best race courses. So it should yes. be a great day at Flemington tomorrow. Over 1,000 metres. And I'll see you uh, just quickly. Mother Nature's going to play ball for you too. You'd be, you'd be quite relieved about that. We want to bank these days for future Melbourne Cup carnivals, but <laughs> delighted to... Delighted to have great weather here at Flemington um, in around about 11,000 people on course. Um, wide expanses of Flemington will be a great place to be. Plenty of action on and off the track. Oh, perfect. Not too hot, not too cold. And it's an historic day as well, isn't it, Steve? So uh, we're hosting here the first world pool on any Australian race meeting. So for those who are unaware, Tabcorp's done a deal with the Hong Kong Jockey Club. So the Super Tab is combining with the Hong Kong Tote Pools, and, that, and that's for all races. That's right. It's a, it's a three-way partnership between the Hong Kong Jockey Club uh, with TAB and also uh, the Victoria Racing Club here at Flemington. And, you know, a first for us, a great initiative. It just means that, um, you know, the punters on course and, uh, and participating in uh, wagering on the day, are participating in a larger pool. And uh, it's a first, so we're still seeing what that impact that has, but more people interested in the racing at Flemington um, is a good thing. You mentioned the world's best sprinter, Nature Strip. So take us through uh, the field here. We've got uh, the two-time Group One winning mare, uh, Rock and Horse. We've got the three-year-old Cool and Gatter as well. But they're all they're all fighting to usurp Nature Strip. Yes, and and look, it'll be great to see. And I think that you know it's a unique um, you know, race, straight down the straight, no bend. Um, it's um, Australia's only one thousand meter Group One contest. Six of eleven runners are Group One winners. You mentioned Nature Strip, who's mm. you know, the world's best sprinter, um, you know, trained by Chris Waller, ridden by James McDonald, um, arguably the best trainer and, and best jockey going around. Um, but plenty of uh, talent chasing rock and horse who just keeps surprising the youngster, the three-year-old Cool and Gatter. Um, so there's a lot for people to really partake in that race. It'll be an exciting 1,000 metres. Yeah, so just going back over the last couple of years here, so Nature Strip, I think a narrow second... Um, last time out, and one in 2021, of course. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Is a Black Caviar was the, the only or the most recent one to su- successfully defend her title in the 1,000? That's right. Yeah. Um, you're all over it. Oh. And um, so given it's not consecutive titles, but it'll be, you know, a second title of Nature's Trip, and, and, you know, it is the favourite. So that's the one to beat. Um, but, you know, experts mm. better than I in terms of <laughs> looking at uh, – Horse flesh and understanding form suggest that uh, there's a few other horses that could um, have claimed the 
tomorrow's event. Now, if people are getting along or planning to get along, uh, Steve, uh, ticket prices start at 25 bucks for adult. What about, what about off the track? I mean, what have you got set up from down there at Flemington? The team's done a great job. We've got a couple of big events, first of all. We've got the Love Letter Racing, which has sold out. Uh, we've got um, you know guests and patrons from the Asian Racing Conference, uh, conference sorry, that are being hosted. Um, but plenty of action on the front lawn, food trucks, pop-up Pim's Bar, and live entertainment between the races and also after the last. So plenty to enjoy, including a, a fine race card, world-class uh, talent on the course, and uh, plenty of space off, uh, on the Great Flemington Lawn. And the best part about it, it does set the scene, doesn't it, for March? So next month, I think you've got three Group 1s there, some 27 races. Um, you tell me, I think maybe $11 million in prize money as well. So March is going to be massive. It is. We've, we've fought hard for this and, and delighted to have three Saturdays in March at Flemington, Australian Guineas Day, Super Saturday, and the now standalone Australian Cup Day, which will be a real pinnacle event in the autumn. So it allows us to bring that carnival feel um, and to build across the three days with the ever-popular Super Saturday sitting right in between. Mm. Looking forward to it tomorrow. Steve, I wanted to... We're speaking of VRC CEO Steve Rossich, of course. I wanted to ask you about a couple of, I don't know, more broad industry matters, if you like. There's a fair bit going on at the moment when it comes to, I guess, the wider racing ecosystem in this country. Um, in fact, it's in the courts in Sydney at the moment, obviously, racing New South Wales, taking four states, including Victoria, to court in a bid to uncover those uh, alleged secret documents Peter Volandi says uh, constitutes anti-competitive behaviour. I mean, are we strapping ourselves in for the long haul here, Steve, or, or do you like to think it can be resolved relatively quickly and some bread broken? Well, what you're talking about there, Sam, is really a matter for racing Victoria and not, not for us mm. as, a, as a race club to really comment on. But I think what we do see just generally is race club and administrators, which um, really are here for the betterment of the sport and that'll play out over time and we want to keep pushing this sport forward. It, it, it drives a lot economically, um, employs a number of people, is a major event. I mean, the Melbourne Cup Carnival is yeah. um, the number one economic contributor of major events in this state. So um, I think all that'll play out and we'll just keep moving forward as what is a great sport. And I know you are at arm's length from it, but just speaking broadly, would you like to think the industry could all just, for lack of a better phrase, get along, or is it is that naive thinking? Is there always going to be that competitive, I guess, spice to things? It's both, isn't there? I think sport's best, any business is best when there's collaboration, so that's what you're hoping for. And at the same time, competition's good, mm. and uh, we'll continue to rise to competition and make sure we put on the best show um, as possible, not just for the, for the industry and the sport, but for the public at large. I'm sure you're keeping tabs on the uh, the Asian Racing Conference, which is on in, in Melbourne at the moment. I just saw earlier this week, uh, Andrew Jones, obviously Racing Victoria CEO, uh, said he might have even been as specific as to say, uh, Steve, that racing needed to toss the fancy dress codes out the window to try and attract a, a new and younger audience. I know Hong Kong Chiefs have also said recently that the sport needs to look perhaps more laterally to to lure what they say is a, a dwindling younger fan base. I mean, w- what are your thoughts on, on that line of thinking? Oh, look, I think it's created a headline. Um, and at this time when there's much more being discussed, but I think it's important to note and we'll have some stats out soon on the Melbourne Cup Carnival, but our younger audience uh, was well and truly up, mm. and that's pleasing to see. And you'll see that again on Saturday, the expanses of Flemington, a broad audience, including uh, dressed in race wear and in casual wear. So we cater for everyone here. We do have member dress code regulations, and they apply to the member areas and are celebrated. But outside the member areas, um, there's no restrictions. Um, I think you'll see 
everything from uh, traditional race wear to you know gents on bucks parties and young ladies <laughs> on hens parties and chicken suits and all sorts of things. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's a it's a it's a venue for all. You'll see that on Saturday here for. Uh, what'll be a great race day, enjoying the sunshine. Um, and I'm not sure it's as the headline, um, the headlines that are being generated are deserved at the moment. There's yeah. broader and more positive things to focus on. Yeah, yeah. No, well said. Hey, Steve, love having you on. A lot to be excited about tomorrow. And as I said, March is going to be huge. It certainly does whet the appetite. Really appreciate you jumping on the line with us uh, this morning. Hopefully you're coming along, Sam. $25. Oh. Only around the corner from me, Steve. And as I said, the weather is right in the sweet spot. So why wouldn't you? See you, Trackside. There's Steve Rossich there, the VRC CEO, joining us on the Captain's Run, of course, for State Transport, Our People, uh, Your Solution. Well, the Jack Jumpers, the Tasmanian Jack Jumpers, didn't have many pundits in their corner last night, but they hit back in their playoff series against the New Zealand Breakers, squaring the series at home in Hobart to send it to a third and deciding game. Kane Pittman covers the sport inside and out for ESPN Australia and New Zealand. And he's joined us on the line. Great pleasure to have you on, Kane. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. What did you make of it all on Kane and Copes last night? It would have been uh, plenty of talk about the Jackies. Well, that's right. And your first point was absolutely spot on because I didn't think the Jack Jumpers were going to win either. But the most important thing is that they don't give a stuff if anyone thinks they're not going to win. And in fact, I think that they prefer it that way. Yeah, so it was said that it just wasn't a great matchup for them. And I was struck by game one as well, where they were just choked defensively. I think it was their lowest score for some four months. It might have even been against the Breakers back in October. But they were able to free the shackles last night. Yeah, they were, and it started with a, a lineup change. And I thought this was the most obvious thing that they had to they had to do. They had to bring in some more offensive threats into the starting lineup. So Jack McVay comes in, and so does Sean McDonald. And at least there's two guys that the Breakers have to respect because if you just straight up look at the box score and you watch the game from the weekend, you see that Milton Doyle had no room to move, and the Breakers were all over him. They were able to send multiple bodies to him mostly because there was other guys on the floor that are not a threat and they just were not worried. And if you want to pass the ball to some of these guys in the corner and let them shoot open threes, the breakers are happy. They're going to live with that. So I think that getting Milton Doyle some more room to operate was the number one uh, target, number one uh, thing that the Jack Jumpers had to do. And he went from taking nine shots in game one to getting 17 shots in game two, which Mm. I think is a a far better number for him. But just putting the lineups to one side, if you like, Kane, I mean, the the break is still led by five late in the third quarter. And I I think, I don't know about you, but I'm sitting there watching a thing and they've they've got them right where they want them here. And then an 11-0 run from the home side, either side of three-quarter time. So there was an an intent there as well. Yeah, there was. There was. And, and, well, there always is a little bit different when you're you're battling for your season and Mm. you understand that it's win or go home. Uh, They offensively, as I said, they had to score. But I thought defensively they did a pretty good job on on the breakers as well, particularly when it came to Will McDowell-White. And if you talk about the intent from the defensive end, they did their best to get the ball out of Will McDowell-White's hands and not let him operate the half-court offense, get into those pick-and-roll scenarios, get downhill, and then either find the big men all the shooters on the outside. So Will McDowell-White had a, had a difficult night. He only had four assists, which is a very, very low number for him, as well as uh, only the eight points. And, and I think that that is what they'll try to replicate again in game three. Will McDowell-White has had an underrated season. He is uh, probably going to be a future boomer. He's, had, he's been sensational. So if they stop him from orchestrating everything, mm. it does help. And offensively, I think a big difference came from beyond the arc, didn't it? So I think they were 11 of 28 
Tasmania and uh, New Zealand just six of twenty three. So they they clearly shot the ball well, also. Yeah, they were twenty four for one hundred and four in the four losses against New Zealand this year. That's twenty three percent. That's not going to cut it. And, and look, the other thing is they needed a little bit of luck in this game when you are trying to win against the Dower New Zealand Breakers defense that has been hard to crack all season. You need a bit of luck. It was an eleven point win in the end, and they got six points from two end of quarter heaves. And, and that adds up. Those shots were probably very low percentage shots in, in, in the grand scheme of things, but they were able to knock them down and they needed those six points because that's two of your three-pointers out of the 11. Always a great crowd down there in, in Hobart, isn't it, Kane? They get right into it, the locals, and they must love. You referenced him earlier, Jack McVeigh, the Energizer Bunny, if you like. He loves it. Oh, I, I am always on Scott Ross <laughs> and Jack McVeigh watch because <laughs> the in-game stuff, I'm not sure whether Scott Ross absolutely loves some of the antics from Jack McVeigh, but I know that I do. I know that the fans do, and that's what gets Jack McVeigh going. So I think, you know, I think Big Scotty has to, you know, he has to just let him go a little bit, perhaps more than he would other players. But there's been some funny interactions through the season. But when he's cheering up the crowd, that's when he's at his best. Oh, where does Scott Ross sit in, in in the coaching fraternity or landscape, Kane? I mean, they appear to be so well coached, Tasmania, and. That might sound like an obvious statement, but I love his language. Like he speaks about defending the island and he's got some great turns of phrase and it would appear from the outside looking in that he's got the players eating out of the palm of his hand down there and there's a great chemistry. Yeah, it's always fascinating to to get the chance to talk to him because he will tell you that it's his experience that has taught him uh, all these things, whether it's about bringing the community together, bringing a good personalities together, not just skilled players. They have to have the right temperament for the locker room to get through an entire season. But he says it wasn't always like this. I mean, he's in his late 50s now. He's been doing this for over two decades. And he looks at some of the younger coaches around the league, whether it's Chase Buford, Adam Ford, and we think they're a little bit more animated. They get, they get the, the emotions can get the better of them at times. And he shrugs his shoulders and says, yeah, that was me two decades ago. Sheesh. So this is the product of, of a long, long time in the business, learning what works, learning what doesn't work. Uh, but you're right. I mean, we all look at this team. I still look at this matchup with New Zealand, and I look at the names on paper, and I say there is no way that New Zealand should lose this series. I thought they should have won last night, uh, but he continuously has this team get to the line. So what if we crystal ball game three, then I imagine you're sticking to your guns. You think New Zealand get it done back on their own floor? Yeah, I, I still think they will. I still think they will. I think they have the, the offensive threats, whether it's at Brantley and Pardon, uh, they can get the job done in the paint. And then I think Will McDowell-White, they'll go back and say, OK, how can we free up Will McDowell-White? How can we get him the ball more? Barry Brown actually had a number of really good opportunities when the Breakers were making the, a, a strong comeback late in this game. So, look, uh, can the Jack Jumpers again score in the high 80s into the 90s against the Breakers on the road? Based on what we've seen this season, the, the, it would suggest not. But again, as we've said, they, they don't give us stuff what I think, let's be honest. But I, I, think the, I do think the Breakers, I, I think they, they'll get through the grand final. They've been the second best team in the league all season long. And I think it would be good if they're there to maybe face the Sydney Kings. We're speaking to ESPN's Kane Pittman. Kane, this is a question without notice, but it comes from a listener of our text uh, machine here. He's asking, why play Cam Glidden for only two minutes? I think, I think he might have even played less than that, maybe 90 seconds on court. Yeah, defensive stuff. Uh, there's been some some concerns with uh, some of the stuff he's doing on the defensive end of the floor, but he's an excellent shooter. So that's why he came into the game very, very late because they're like, okay, we're down 10. What do we need? A couple of quick threes. But I think when it gets to the postseason, we do see those rotations tighten up just a little bit. And Cam Glidden's been 
uh, sort of pushed out of that for now. But again, if they get to a stage where they really need quick offense, uh, that's when Cam Glidden will come in. Uh, what about the other side of things? Uh, Kings and the Taipans, of course. Cairns, unfortunately, copped some injuries at the worst possible moments. But, gee, they gave as good as they got. And it took something pretty solid from the Kings in the second half and their MVP, Xavier Cooks, to turn it around in game one. So it goes up to Cairns tonight. 7.30 tip-off in this one. Can they um, can they ask the right questions again, Cairns, do you think here, Kane? Yeah, I think we'll see more of the same. I think the blueprint coming into game one was pretty obvious. It was pretty clear what the Cairns Taipans were going to do. They don't score a lot in the paint, particularly against this Sydney team. So they have to go uh, absolutely crazy from the outside. They are going to shoot a whole bunch of threes. More than 50% of their shots came from three-point land, which is is a pretty outrageous percentage. That is well above the league average. But in the first half, at least, it was working for them. And Jonah Antonio was going absolutely nuts. He had six threes and they had the lead. And then once we saw those shots, uh, start not to fall. That's when the Kings got on top. They can get the rebounds. They can get their transition game going. And the Kings will the Kings will make that bet. They will make that bet that the Kansas Star fans are not going to shoot 40%, 50% from three across the course of four quarters. They'll stick with it. They won't change their defensive uh, adjustments there. They're happy to let the Kansas Star fans shoot those above-the-break threes and bet that by the end of the game, uh, they'll get on top. I know yourself and Lenar Copeland spent a bit of time last night talking about um, the, the Mavs and obviously Kyrie Irving's first week over there in Dallas and, and Josh Green, who's made a fair impression this NBA season as well. Yeah, he's been awesome. And, and I thought it was pretty definitive. We had uh, Tim McMahon on the show who covers the Mavericks over in the US. And he said, look, right now, Josh Green is the third best player on the Dallas Mavericks. Now, he did say mm. maybe that's not the best thing for the Dallas Mavericks in terms of winning the title this year. Maybe <laughs> they need some further additions because Josh Green is so young. But that just goes to say that the trust that the team has in him and the level that he's got to this season, his defensive stuff is awesome. But now we're starting to see him do a little bit more than just stand in the corner and shoot open threes. He's mm. going to make a lot of money very soon. And Kyrie was obviously a massive talking point uh, during the latest trade window. Yeah, well, at the moment, he's playing basketball. It's going well. The <laughs> Mavericks will be hoping it stays that way because if you've got Kyrie Irving and Luka Doncic, you're going to feel like you can win any series all the way to the NBA title. They do lack a little bit of depth, there's no doubt, but... Yeah, they'll be crossing their fingers that it's all about the basketball. No, very well said, Kane, and very well delicately put too, I might add. Hey, um, we're loving the NBL playoffs at the moment. Um, um, Rap that it's continuing tonight up there in Cairns. We'll see what uh, the Taipans can offer up. Uh, Sydney is certainly going to take some beating. I love your insights this morning, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. There's Kane Pittman there via ESPN and uh, the co-host of uh, Kane and Copes uh, with the great Leonard Copeland, of course, bringing us up to speed on these NBL playoffs. I watched a bit of that Jack Jumpers game last night. I couldn't look away. It was a good product. Don't mind it. I mean, a lot of people texting and saying maybe best of five needs to happen. Jeez, it's, it's high stakes, though, at this stage of the season. Now, Scott Roth off the text is the Craig McRae of the NBL preaches character and culture, focuses on strengths, not weaknesses, and gets the most out of every play. And we've been on that subject a bit today, haven't we? Uh, after the latest uh, chapter in basketball uh, that England produced yesterday. Quite an extraordinary day of test cricket. Uh, JR in Mulgrave texting as well to say good morning. In regards to the way the Aussies play their cricket and the differences in generations way of playing, I think it needs to be said that uh, the play the play meaner doesn't mean to sledge or abuse or stare down opponents. It means to get in the fight, be competitive, don't be soft and fold like a wet paper towel. All the best to the Aussies today, but just get in the fight is all we are asking. That's from um, JR in uh, in Mulgrave. Uh, hi, Sam. Uh, says Glenn in Adelaide. There's a, there's a bit of uh, 
A bit of love for Adelaide coming through in this one, so bear with me. There's a real chance Australia will lose this series 4-0. Now, that means the washed-out Sydney Test will most likely cost Australia a spot in the final of the World Test Championship. Even more reason to move the New Year's Test. Thanks, Glenn Adelaide. Uh, Graham in Sydney, sorry, I'm a bit late getting to this question. Is SENZ covering the New Zealand-England series? If not, who is? Uh, Graham, apologies for the delay. No, they're not. They didn't... Uh, there was a rights issue there. They didn't get the rights, so that is why... Um, that is why we've got uh, some of SENZ's very own um, calling the action for TalkSport over there in the UK. So unfortunately, um, they're not calling that. In fact, they're taking our feed of uh, Australia and India. Why didn't the selectors take a genuine all-rounder to fill in for Green? It's so important for team balance. It would have been a perfect opportunity to blood someone like Aaron Hardy, a future star. That's from Brett in Bunyip. And yeah, we've had a bit of love off the text in the last few days when it comes to, to Aaron Hardy. Um, we'll take a break here on the captain's run. Uh, the open line is exactly that. There's still plenty of time to give us a buzz. We're going to talk to Andy Harper, Miles Fitzner ahead of us as well, Barat Sunder Racing. But in the final hour in particular, there's plenty of scope for you to join us on the open line for EFS, delivering simple freight solutions. The captain's run is for our mates at State Transport. Our people are your solution. Uh, Tanasi's dropped us a line in here. Oh, God. Hearing Ross Lyon speak is maybe the most painful thing in the game for neutrals, uh, neutral watchers. I couldn't disagree more, Tanasi. I could not disagree more. I'm not a Saints uh, fan or uh, avid follower. I just think he's great for the game. Um, for, for all the reasons I stated earlier, um, I think he's a must listen each and every time. Uh, off the text, instead of playing BBL, the Aussie Test cricketers should have spent an extra week in India playing a lead-up game and acclimatising. T20 is a good lead-up to basketball, not a tour to India. I'm sure they, they knew what they were doing with a lead-up. Done it many times before. Um, they chose to prepare a wicket um, up there in New South Wales that they deliberately doctored for turn rather than getting over there and, and taking whatever they were going to be given um, in India. So I, don't, not, I think that's the least of their problems at the moment, uh, the warm-up games, but um, that's just my opinion. There's plenty happening uh, when it comes to domestic and international football at the moment. The Matildas are in the Cup of Nations, of course. Uh, it's all happening in the Europa League, in the Champions League, and in the A-League. Uh, so for that reason, we get on one of the absolute uh, best in the business. Andy Harper is with us this morning on the Captain's Run. Good morning to you, Andy. Morning to you. How are you going? Hey, good to talk to you again. I've got to open with the Europa League because uh, that game this morning between Barca and Man U at the new Camp, that was as thrilling a 2-2 draw as I've seen for a while. Yeah, well, the game can turn this up every now and again and, and uh, you know, it's it, reaffirms, I think, the stabilisation of Man United um, under Ten Hag. We're disappointed they didn't get maximum points, but of course you are playing Barcelona away. And, and it, it's also, I mean, there's so many strands to this game and the story around it, but here you have two of the world's biggest clubs in the second-tier European League, two key protagonists in establishing the European Super League, which was supposed to break away and set new standards. So... Um, I think it reinforces the need, in my opinion, other people might differ in their view, but this reinforces the need to to consolidate uh, the game. And so teams you know, can't just secure big finance and cut away and, and, and start new competitions because whatever's confronting Barcelona and Man United, they're in this situation now where they've got to rebuild to get back to the top tier. Mm. And in the meantime, they're providing great theatre. It was a great game, thrilling to watch. And... and I'm not a Manchester United fan particularly, but but it is encouraging to see this stabilisation continue under Ten Hag and get ready for for an assault on on trophies again. Yeah, and they're for sale too, Andy. So I was going to ask you how your consortium was coming along. 
<laughs> yeah, we're just a. Well, I've managed to scrape up about three bob. Uh, I've only got six point five billion pounds to go. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Glazers are unpopular now more than ever. They want ten billion though, so you're going to have to stump up a little bit more, Andy, for for Manchester United. But let's go across the other side of Manchester because City. I tell you what, challenge accepted. Top of the EPL, they rolled Arsenal three one. Now, what sort of seed of doubt, if any? would reside in the Gunners now, having uh, done so much for so long to just have City not only breathing down their necks but delivering a, a pretty big statement of intent? Oh, look, I think so. I, I think they might be a bit nervous, uh, if, if just for recent, recent circumstances, OK? So they've, they've obviously found Manchester City directly too hard to handle and they've had to get through the mini turmoil of the league, uh, the English Premier League coming out and apologising for that errant VAR decision. Um, which caused consternation a couple of weeks back. Um, and so they just they get through this mini-ride. But the key for Mikel Arteta is to, to, to maintain the buffer they've got, is to realise that we're not playing Manchester City every week. Of course, the competition is difficult every week, but you're not playing Manchester City every week, which is on another level. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the more the Manchester City machine rolls on, uh, just to go off on another tangent, the more the opposition to them will grow within the Premier League and this and this pressure to reform either them or the game so that, that these juggernauts can't be formed on the back of nation-state wealth. Um, that's, of course, the argument that's simmering around this. On, mm. the, on the Arsenal situation in particular, Arteta has done a great job, uh, and they can certainly maintain their buffer. But, but, as I said, the way I view it is you've just got to get into everyone's head that you don't have to play Manchester City every week. That's other people's jobs to try and take bark off them. Our job is to maintain... Uh, a, a, a true north focus, deal with the very difficult opponents as they come up, but, but realising that you've seen to them before this season and you'll be able to see to them again if you maintain the rage. Andy, can I take you back to our shores, in fact, up to Central Coast Stadium last night? So the Cup of Nations, the Matildas, I think it's going to be something really special later on this year for this Women's World Cup, and we're going to gather around the Matildas like uh, something we might not have seen for some time. I think the ground swell of support is going to be huge for a huge event. And, uh, gee, they rolled on nicely last night, 4-0 in the end. I think there were nearly 8,000 there uh, for this demolition job on the Czech Republic. Yeah, it was a good second half. It was a very, very poor first half. Uh, very poor first half. But as is always the case with these things, you know, you need to pay credit to the uh, architects of the turnaround. Um, we on the television were, were prepared to, to, to shoot that phrase home to coach Tony Gustafsson, who <laughs> very humbly deflected that to his captain, Sam Kerr, uh, for what was apparently a very poignant and motivating half-time speech. Whatever, whoever and however, uh, the second half was a very powerful performance from the Matildas um, and they just demolished Czechia. The first half didn't look like that at all. In fact, Czechia, as we now refer to them, the Czech Republic, yep. uh, up till now, um, certainly had the better of the chances in the first half and probably should have gone into the break a goal to the good, um, which would have really set the, the cat amongst the pigeons. But as it was, the Matildas got in unscathed and then turned it around into a very impressive performance. But all bets are off for Sunday. Game two of the Cup of Nations uh, is at the Olympic Stadium in Sydney uh, on Sunday evening against Spain. I'm not quite sure what the crowd's going to be, but this will be a big test uh, for the Matildas. Uh, if they play like they did in the second half, if they're allowed to by Spain, they'll have a chance. If they play like they did in the first half, Spain will mop the floor with them. Mm. And this is going to be a great test leading up to the World Cup. And you're right, it is going to... These girls are going to generate uh, even more publicity. They're hugely popular now. And they, 
Um, in its own little way, relativity is apply here, Sam, but um, just walking out the back of the stadium yesterday, gosh, it was a beautiful day, beautiful evening, and, and when the bus rolled in, in, it, in its own small way, with the kids all lined up uh, along the barricade, five, six deep, it, it was like a little bit like the Beatles arriving in their own small way. Yeah. Sam Kerr gets off the bus, and, and, and the whole place just erupts. I mean, she's really magnetic is Sam and her her career is is generating that sort of interest and and then the more the fans get to know more of the of the players um, come July uh, if 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 the marketing really kicks in then it's it is going to be huge it really is going to be a huge tournament bigger than bigger than most people even in their wildest dreams anticipated I think oh I think so I think it'll be big not just in its own way but just big in general I think we'll really that that patriotism will really shine through for it I really believe that and, and Sam Curry's a absolute global <laughs> star maybe people don't have a proper appreciation of that if they're not astute observers of the game you're on air last night of course and you will be on Sunday night when they do take on Spain it's on 10 bold 10 play and, and Paramount plus just before we leave them though Harps I mean realistically speaking expectations for this World Cup I mean People will plug in and expect them to, to, to win the whole thing. I mean, what's a realistic expectation and, and how are we placed? That's a really good question. Minimum expectation for me is quarterfinals. So it's, a, it's like the Men's World Cup numbers of, of competition format. People are more familiar with the Men's World Cup, 32 teams, 64 games. This is the first time the Women's World Cup has expanded to a 32-team format. So it's the same number of games uh, um, and the same sort of mechanisms as with the men's tournament, for those who are familiar with that. Um, and many are, because that, the, the Men's World Cup has just been growing exponentially in an Australian conscience sense for years now. So the, the big difference, of course, is the, is the level of depth across the women's competition compared to the men. And that's where there's going to be a few holes in the Women's World Cup competition. Nevertheless, and considering that... Um, uh, my expectation of the Matildas, given the players they've got in their squad uh, and the home ground advantage, which is significant for our men's and women's teams, um, minimum is the quarterfinals. And the, the reason why I, I tied it back to the 32-team competition, that means group stage, you've got to finish in your top two in the group, and they've got Nigeria, Canada and Ireland, and there's all sorts of trouble with the Canada team, the top-ranked team in that group. And so the way things are at the moment... The Matilda should be steering for top in that group, mm. um, knocking off the current Olympic champions in Canada. Um, and then you get to the, the round of 32, uh, the, the round of 16, which is where the Socceroos got knocked out against Argentina so memorably recently. And then the next stage after that is the quarterfinal. So I'm expecting the, the Matildas' minimum expectation is for them to go beyond one beyond at least what the Socceroos did in Qatar. Um, and when you get to that level, now you're with the top eight in the world and all bets are off. Just quickly, better ask you about the A-League, uh, Harps, obviously. So we've got Western United, Wellington, Phoenix tonight, but it is hard not to be drawn to the return of victory in City tomorrow night, 7.45, for all obvious reasons. Unfortunately, everything's going to be dredged up again, but these two are about to go back at it on the pitch. Yeah, well, I mean, everyone in the game, has a, they'd be lying if they said they didn't have a little bit of nervousness. Um Nervousness in two ways. Firstly, nervous about having to address this issue to non-football fans at the pub or around the water cooler at work trying to explain what happened or mm. apologise for what happened. You know, football fans are constantly having to defend or at least explain or provide some sort of level of insight as to why this 
why this idiocy takes place. Um, so they're nervous about having to regurgitate that, almost in a post-traumatic sense, really, and I'm not mincing my words. Um, and then uh, then nervous that some idiot's going to do something again and we have to go through the whole business. Mm. I, um, I, 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 I am pretty convinced that the authorities, wherever they were lax last time, and I think there were some holes in the preparation, and everything's been shared at home to Melbourne Victory as a football club, but I think there are other culpable uh, contributors as well in defence of victory. Um, uh, and I'm expecting, just as an aside to that, a lot more visible police and security presence. And I, I, I thought the deployment of police from my individual non-expert view from a community member was uh, I was staggered last time round. I don't think that they'll, they'll, in my opinion, I'll be surprised if they make that mistake again. Um, with all the sanctions as well, like it's, it's, I, I hope it's not so run so tight that people can't enjoy themselves in a full and wholesome and community acceptable way. Um, but there is this nervousness. Then you get to the football, and, mate, to me, this is getting last roll of the dice time for Melbourne victory. Last roll of the dice time. Um, because they've got to play Melbourne City once more, at least finish off what I call the jumpstart derby. Now they've got to redo that pre-Christmas derby, starting 20 minutes in and a goal down. Um, their points that they're sort of thinking, well, if we can pick them up, along with another win along the way, we're back in the top six race. They can't beat City tomorrow, then I don't know quite how they overcome the hurdle of taking them on again in the jumpstart derby. And then they've got to focus on accumulating other points in the nine games that are going to remain or so to get into the six. And I, that might start getting too much for them. They've got to make a statement tomorrow night. It's going to be fantastic to watch. All nervousness aside... I am really looking forward to this one. Uh, absolutely. And as am I when it comes to the Matildas next assignment in the Cup of Nations. Now, you'll be behind the mic for that again, Andy. It's Sunday night, Spain. It's on 10 Bold, 10 Play, and, of course, Paramount+. Plus. Really appreciate you joining us, mate. Thanks for your time. Always my pleasure. See you soon. There's Andy Harper there. So we go from the round ball to the Sharon and Andy Harper to Channel 9's Braden Ingram, who's been... Kind enough to join us after he sort of tickled us a little bit with that uh, tweet earlier, the no filming uh, out at Marab and the edict from the Saints and perhaps Cuddly Ross just sort of just hardening up a tad uh, when it comes to uh, preparations for season 2023. Braden, thanks for your time and I hope you haven't been doing any filming out there. Uh, no, good morning, Sam. We were able to get a few minutes, but the cameras were strictly shut off before we got into the match sim and the intra-club. So, yeah, in capital letters, no filming signs. So, clearly, I think under Brett Ratt, we were allowed in a bit more often and it was a bit more open season, but clearly Ross's game plan is under lock and key. It must be said that, look, uh, I know Carlton's doing something behind closed doors today, as they often mm. do. So, too, the Bulldogs out at Braybrook. So, it, it's not... It's not uh, uncommon, but uh, maybe it's not in your face like the no-filming sign. Collingwood, of course, though, there at your club, open to the public from 5pm tonight at Olympic Park. So it's interesting how different clubs do it. So the Saints fans listening this morning, Braden, will be really keen to, to know. What have you witnessed? I mean, who's stationed forward? What does it all look like out there But uh, as per your eye? Well, I think the news, first of all, this morning, um, which you're probably already aware of, that Josh Gabbledge broke that uh, Tim Membry has yep. done, uh, gone under the knife for knee issue. So he's now racing to be fit for round one. So it really adds to their forward issues with no Max King up there, no Matty Allison as well. They're, so that, they're lacking in options. Um, that's for certain. Look, what I've noticed so far, um, what has been a bit of an odd sort of uh, intra-club has sort of started going full ground and now they've divided the ground uh, right down the middle. Um, we've seen uh, Anthony Caminiti. He's shown some nice early signs. Of course, Rob Harvey talking this morning saying that, look, uh, he's probably coming from a fair way back if he was only just added to the 
uh, he's certainly made some encouraging signs fairly early. Down back, we've seen Messiah Wangani Malira. Of course, he's uh, moved to a half back and to the back line. Certainly been touted this person. He's been taking the kick in, which the uh, super coach uh, operators, I'm sure they'll be interested in that. So there's been some, some early signs, but I guess we're not going to know how that forward line is going to look until probably the first practice mm. match next week. Um, here at Moorabbin. No, they're going to have to get creative uh, inside 50. No doubt about that, at least for the first few rounds anyway. Braden, appreciate you slicing off a few minutes to join us, mate. Um, much appreciated. My pleasure, mate. Just very quickly, one man I did mention, Mateus Philippou, up forward. Uh, as Saints fans get excited, he does look very, uh, very promising in, uh, in attack. Nice. Matthias Philippou there, their top draft pick, of course. Uh, we'll let Braden Ingram go from Channel 9. Uh, and as I look out the window, uh, that feedback is the wind. And he's absolutely blowing a gale. And uh, and he's down there in Moorabbin, obviously. So apologies for that. But that's uh, some of the, uh, I guess, snap assessments of that practice match down at Moorabbin via Braden Ingram there. Uh, Melbourne's weather. And by the way, if you did miss that news or you couldn't hear Braden, uh, Tim Membry has gone in for cleanup surgery on that knee. The Saints... Uh, adamant, though, that uh, he's uh, going to feature in round one. But he went on and off yesterday, so probably rehab and recovery dependent. Melbourne's weather, afternoon, cool change is incoming. Top of 38 before that, though. That's for City Power supplying power to homes in the CBD and the inner suburbs. Oh, yes, this is the man that has David King in his corner and a great pleasure to have him in the flesh as well. I can't keep up with his comings and goings, but he's here. He's with us. The Magic Man, Miles Fitzner. Milo. Good to be on with you, Tommy Morris. I mean, sorry, Sammy Edmund. Good to be in here, mate. Great to be in here. I I, uh, I thought, I thought uh, sorry, I'm just, yeah, it's a lot happening here in SEN, isn't there? Oh, it's hard to follow. Well, no wonder you're confused. You're here, there, and everywhere. Where were you the other day? I saw you post something from the, how long? I was up north of Wagga. What were you I, doing up well, there? In a previous life, um, I was a, I was a livestock auctioneer. That's what I did. I flew all around Australia, and people would get me to go and sell their livestock. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. What so, were you selling off up there? Sheep. Sheep. So I only do six a year, but I'd, two of them are in the last 10 days, and then I do four in uh, in October. Jeez, how does an auction for sheep go? How do you do? You whip them up into a frenzy? Or? Yeah, that's the whole idea. Yeah. Get them confused, yeah. and um, we did two hundred and forty odd lots in just over t- just over two hours. So it's over a hundred lots uh, an hour. Pardon my city slicker sort of thinking here, but uh, what makes one sheep better than another sheep? It's all genetics. Okay. It's all. It's like selling horses. It's all genes. But yeah. it's. All, I mean, I don't. I don't profess to be an expert in it. It's yeah. just I'm apparently good at extracting money. Good muller. Pardon? Good muller? Uh, look, it's okay. Look, it keeps the wolves at bay. Right. It keeps the wolves at bay. Speaking of which, what, yes. what is the go with this? Kingy is in my corner, but I don't know. I don't, I'm not getting it. Huge fan. I've never met him. Backed up over it again. To, he's fully in love. I've he's never besotted. met him. I don't know what's going on. He's a very strange man. A uh, Group 1 Racing. He is. He he must be. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) Obviously now. Uh, Group 1 Racing at Flemington tomorrow. Of course, you had Steve Rossich on the line earlier. It is the Black Caviar Lightning Stakes in the world's highest rated sprinter. Nature stripped back for another crack. One in 2021. A tight runner-up last year. Short price favourite, as you'd expect, and has drawn a gate one. Does the champ get the job done? Well, statistically, wins 54% of the time. So I mean, it's pretty. If you can get two dollars forty, I mean, the maths would be that you just take the two forty and you mm-hmm. back him, wouldn't you? Because uh, statistics, and the math wouldn't lie. Okay. Now, um, gate one's a little bit odd um, and not great, 
Uh, also, if he doesn't step, there's also a horse inside called Rocking Horse. I say inside, but that's inside to the outer of the track because I'll probably come up the middle mm. uh, in Rocking Horse, which yeah, I'm thinking may even want to go left. Um, so whether or not they bump into each other, I'm not sure. I'm probably, I think Nature Strip will be on top. I think the play, though, um, might be Cool and Gatter at the price, $7. Um, or even maybe a baller at $18, mm. uh, Marabi at nines. But I got him on top, but, geez, I won't be touching him at even money. But about 240 statistically, you can have a bet at that. All right, that's that. Let's park that for a moment because there's plenty of other good racing on the card. What about race two, the vanity? What takes your fancy here? Uh, I like this. Uh, named after Gareth Hall, this race, uh, in memorial of him. Uh, race two, see you oh, in wow. heaven. Richard Chantel Jolly. Do you that's, like that? That's going to get back. Yeah, good. I hope so. Uh, he gets a haircut every Thursday, so that's weird. Um, race two, number one, see you in heaven here. Richard and Chantel Jolly train. Craig Williams elects to ride this horse again. Now, three starts he's had on this horse for two wins and a placing. Ran in behind Shimino on a track that didn't favour the horse at Morfittville. Uh, draws perfectly in gate nine. This horse has form here. They don't bring them to Melbourne for holidays, the Jolly Camp. Uh, I've got it on top. Be one of the better ones of the day, I would have thought. See you in heaven in the vanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, race six, the CS Haystakes. Uh, interesting little race, this. I think uh, there's a few horses at Overs, so maybe a Tommy Two play or a triple play. Uh, Bank Moore for Richard Lemming and Jai McNeil. You're going to get around $5 and $2. Uh, Belair is $18 and $4.80. Maybe a little place bet there and then just save attrition. But they're going to be the three. You sort of got to be careful in those races sometimes. Sometimes it's better just to watch. Just before we go up to uh, Rose Hill, Marabi is going to be the next big thing off the text when it comes to sprinting. It will win tomorrow, Magic. Yes, the... The thing about the Flemington Straight is you have to it, – it's a it's a real horses for courses. It makes horses go weird, and it also – horses love it. Now, horses that love it in this race are Nature Strip, Rock and Horse, a few of these. Um, Marabi, you're right, will be probably be a star, but I think Marabi's more suited to a corner, um, and uh, they can get a bit lost, especially first time up the straight. So happy to risk first time. If it comes out and blows me away, you probably won't see me ever take it on up the straight ever again, but – it's, you've got to be very, very careful about backing horses up the straight. Let's go up to Sydney where they've taken us to court, uh, of course, Bart. There's a couple of very nine, uh, nice races up there. Let's have a look at the Silver Slipper. Which of the two-year-olds do you like here? Uh, King's Gambit went under at a ridiculous quote last night. It was like a dollar twenty and lost. Um, uh, Cylinder's probably going to be my push. I know the Cummings team and Godolphin team like it. We heard that on Giddy Up on uh, SE and Track Mornings. Uh, so Cylinder in front of King's Gambit, then Platinum Jubilee for me. I think Cylinder's a good price there. They tipped it for the slipper. So win this, it'll probably start short enough in the slipper. Gambit, you have to respect. It's between those two, take them same races and box them up um, however you like. Platinum's probably try to lead them up but run out of steam to run third. But good race, good race. What about the Hobartville Stakes uh, Group 2? Uh, well, uh, we see the potential superstar here in half cabin. You can't not tip him. I can't find anything to beat him. The one query is that this horse has bled once. Now, if this horse bleeds again, it's rubbed out. Like, it can't run again. So every time they go around, there's always a risk. A dollar fifty at the moment is ridiculous. Now, I would suggest to everyone around the country, you just let good horses run around. You don't need the dollar... You can find better dollar fifty pops to put in your multis. So this is a multi... This will be a multi-killer. Because if it goes under, 75% of the people around the country would have that in their multis and they'll be flipping. So... Look, gate 11, it is drawn wide. Timmy Clark aboard. It should win, but it's not going to have any of my money and it won't be in any of my multis. But, gee, um, wait for the Randwick Guineas. If he gets there, if you like him for the Randwick Guineas, you want to back him now because if he yep. bolts this in, uh, you'll be $1.50 again in the Randwick Guineas. 
Hey, now, I understand. I'm disappointed, but I do understand. And there's plenty of great racing around the country. And I love asking about your best. You know, yes. I love it. It's my favourite time of the week. But um, you're going to keep your powder dry. But I understand that. Well, there's yeah. Go on. Well, there's a reason, because I'm on yes. air tomorrow. You've got a big um, day tomorrow. And I'm on air tomorrow on Saturday track. And the thing is, when you're not knowing that you're on air then, you want to wait as long as you can to finalise your best so that I don't then, if something happens or a track changes, I'm not going to change. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I'm happy to go with a couple. We'll go to Pinjarra, right, all the way in the West. The Magic Millions is on. There's a two-year-old classic there, race number eight. Um, I'm with the Odenaka, the two. You're getting $6 in even money. So race eight at Pinjarra, number two, Odenaka. I'm going to have a bet there. And then a couple that I'm probably happy to give you. Um, I think, yeah, race two at Flemington, see you in heaven. And Rose Hill, race three, number six, economics. They're probably the three I'm not really going to waver from. They'll be included in the best bets tomorrow. But I've got odds couple in the morning with Taggart and then... On air and and hey, whatnot. let's that's tomorrow. But let's not forget Fitzy's Formland from midday today on SEN Track. Yes, this is the big. This is the big next date for you. Yes, so Gab, Gab Nutt, uh from the Ma Eustace team run through all their runners in depth. Uh, Tom English Hong Kong tips. I've also got Luke Kemmies on from the Boys Get Paid Syndicate in New Zealand. They have a punters club over there. They play with a million dollars every weekend from a buy-in for their punters club. So it'll be a good chat with him. Shane Curlio, uh, Jack Watts joins me uh, as always. So it's an interesting little one. Flick over if you like and have a chat. Oh, absolutely. We'll do that as soon as I leave here each and every day. Hey, great to have you on, mate. Um, have a good weekend and uh, may your beautiful rain continue. Always happy to chat to you, my friend. I'll see you in here next Friday. There's the man who makes the magic. Miles Fitzner. Let's get to the newsroom. Uh, we left you with the news that Dyson Eppler stepped down as Essendon captain. As rumoured, that is confirmed. Our members, uh, those of you listening this morning, would have got an email from the club just before half past 11, uh, stating that Dyson Heppel had stepped down as Essendon captain. Now, the club, for those of you asking, will announce its new captain and leadership group over the next week. So that's the latest change. And an off-season of change out at Tullamarine for the Bombers. Uh, how much change are we going to see in our eleven? It takes uh, the field over there in Delhi in just a few hours' time now, 2.25. We will take you there right here at SEN. And this man is up and about early. It's, uh, what is it, just gone 10 past six over there in uh, Delhi, which is where we find the early riser, and we appreciate it. Barat Sunderason is with us. Morning to you, Barat. Very, very good morning to you, Sam. It's day one of uh, uh, what could be one of the more important test matches this Australian team in this Pat Cummins theatre has played. Uh, and, and yes, it's only up that I'm up and ready. And uh, yeah, it's ready to roll. Uh, it, it, it's, the tone will be set today. We saw it in Nagpur as well. Uh, if, if Australia start well uh, in Delhi uh, in a few hours' time, then maybe the series stays alive. If they don't, it could be over very quickly. It's hard to know what's got more talk, the the, the pitch out of the uh, first test and leading into the second and, and I guess the, the curators and what they tried to do leading into this one or selection. Everyone's just been throwing darts at the board, trying to uh, guess and, <laughs> um, and and have a stab at, at who's going to uh, actually play for Australia in this test, Barad. I mean, it's, it's been talking points everywhere. Oh, absolutely, especially with Australia's playing 11 because uh, with all these injuries that uh, they've been dealing with, uh, hopeful, the hope was that Cam Green would be completely fit and ready to go by now. Uh, we still don't know uh, whether he is. Uh, look, he turned up for training uh day before yesterday, so two days out from the test, where he batted for quite a while. 
but there were times when every time the ball hit the middle of his bat, it jarred his hand and you could see him wincing in pain. Um, mm-hmm. But he did not show up for training yesterday. So does that mean Australia didn't want to take a chance with him on the final day or does that mean he didn't you know, get up well from that practice session? We'd have to wait and watch because it, it kind of revolves around Cam Green session. If Cam Green plays, then I, I I believe very, very strongly that Australia will give Matthew Kuhneman a test debut and go in with three spinners with Pat Cummins and Cam Green uh, as, the, uh, as the two seamers. Cam Green has been bowling pretty consistently for the last few days. And then there's the Mitchell Stark uh, question. Uh, he bowled for quite a while again, two days out from the test, but he did pull up and uh, he obviously kept uh, you know checking his left hand he the splint on his finger has just come off now uh, so so those are a lot of question marks and then also there's also the possibility of uh, maybe Travis head coming in if Cam Green doesn't play uh, not just for his batting but for his bowling uh, in place of Matt Renshaw. so i don't think the australians knew what their best playing 11 was uh, until late yesterday uh, so we eagerly wait for the toss and for back comments uh, as, uh, to tell us what the playing 11 is. But that's also one of the reasons you want to get to the ground early. They're always clues to pick up from, uh, you know, even before that happens. Yeah. And just speaking of the ground, I mean, what's the scene like? What's the environment and the, the anticipation levels like in Delhi, Bharat? What's, what's the city doing in the lead up to this? Has it captivated them as much as it has us? Oh, absolutely, it has. Um, uh, look, um, the, the one thing about Delhi is uh, the ground is this historical venue, but it's also mm. very accessible. It's uh, uh, pretty much in the uh, on the outskirts of old Delhi, uh, which is where you find uh, a lot of the Mughal infrastructure still there and uh, some wonderful food as well, to be honest. Uh, uh, and you can access it. You know, get there on a metro or a tuk-tuk or just walk down there. Uh, and that makes a huge difference in India when it comes to crowds. Uh, and Australia is always a big sell, right? And beating Australia is also a big sell. Uh, and don't forget, this is where the Border Gavaskar Trophy officially started in 1996 when Australia and India played a one-off test. Uh, so there will be a lot of people. It will be hot during the day. Uh, that uh, pitch question will pop up. Uh, it always looks worse than it plays in, in Delhi. It has uh, a lot to do with the, the nature of the black soil you find in the northern part of India, uh, Mohali, Delhi, all the same. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it doesn't look like There wasn't the level of intrigue around this pitch as there was uh, in Nagpur. You didn't see the ground staff doing anything on towards. Maybe they were waiting for me to leave. That's also possible. But no, I think he'll <laughs> play pretty uh, much like most test matches in Delhi, where uh, the bounce and the pace of the wicket will be uh, uh, the bigger you know, feature than, than uh, extreme turn. Uh, it does go very slow, very quickly. And the bounce just goes away. The, the pitch can go dead very quickly. So uh, it'll be a different kind of test match to what we saw in Nagpur for sure. And Travis Head, I mean, you mentioned him earlier. I'm not sure whether you're of a mind they play him or they don't play him, but he's been said from the things that I've um, read and heard from over there, um, Barat, that perhaps his his net form, for what it's worth, hasn't been overly impressive. I mean, what have you what have you made of uh, of Travis Head sort of away from the game? I think a, a lot has been made of his his net form, and uh, Travis Head will be the first person to tell you that he's never been the most 
attractive uh, net batter. Uh, you know, some 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 guys are just, and that's how cricketers are around the world. Some guys, like Manas Labusain and Steve Smith, will not leave a net till they've perfected every shot that they want to perfect, and they'll also never leave the net till they have played uh, the best shot of the day. If that makes sense. My um, Travis is different. He's always uh, one of those guys like Gurinder the Sehwag almost who would get out many many times and still not be too bothered by it. I don't think uh, he, or different batters won't get into the nets wanting different things from their session. So I think people are reading a bit too much into it. I think it's just a question of Matt Renshaw ahead of Travis Head for that first test. Mm. Once Australia said we need a right-hander and Hanscom, they just felt like they've invested a lot in Renshaw in terms of bringing him back into the side and how well he's played against Spirit in the last few years as compared to Travis Head in Sri Lanka. I think they just got a little spooked by it. Uh, I didn't agree with that call, but um, it didn't work out either. Uh, so where is Travis Head's confidence right now? I- I'm not sure. One thing I have noticed is he's grown his moustache back. And the last time he did that, he made a chest uh, hundred at the Gabba last year uh, <laughs> in the Ashes to kind of get his career rolling all over again. So maybe that's the sign. Fair enough. We'll take anything we can get, I reckon, at this point. And, and Barat, I was speaking to Barat Sundarason, by the way, who's over there in Delhi ahead of this second test. What about the home side, Barat? I mean, any any prospect of changes leading to the second test, or do we feel they're they're going to go in unchanged? No, they, they actually just get stronger because uh, Shreya Sayer, who missed out the first test due to injury uh, and is considered the best batter against spin in India right now, especially at home, uh, will, is coming back. I mean, I saw him take catches at slip and short leg end. Uh, so he will come in place uh, of Sudhir Kumar Yadav, who made his debut, SKY as they call him, uh, in, in Nagpur, and, and rightfully so, uh, which only strengthens India's batting even more. Uh, which is going to challenge uh, Australia even more. So that should be the only change. Um, I can't see them um, you know, playing around with the team apart from that. Great to have you on, Barat. Really appreciate you taking the time out of what's going to be a massive day over there and, and starting your day early for us over here in Australia. We, we can't wait to, to watch and we can't wait to listen uh, to all the coverage with uh, you, a big part of it, of course, with, with Adam and Jared um, riding shotgun. Thanks so much for your time uh, this morning. I know I did all Sam. Uh, yeah, it's a good morning to wake up early. And uh, hopefully, hopefully Australia fight back and this series comes alive.